You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky Schneider. This is WFHB Local News for Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB News speaks with Emily Weikert Bryant, Executive Director of Feeding Indiana's Hungry, who urges state lawmakers to vote no on House Bill 1354. The bill would make it harder for residents to receive SNAP benefits. More on that in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, security programs on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment with Richard Fish. More following today's feature. But first, your environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Wednesday, February 9th. I'm Nathaniel Wyanzapfel. Earlier this week, Sunrise Bloomington, a well-known climate activist organization, held a rally insisting that the Indiana University Foundation divest all money that is invested in fossil fuels. This represents the next step in the ongoing and multi-year push to have the IU Foundation not support the fossil fuel industry and perhaps invest in cleaner energy sources. A petition from October saw over 1,300 signatures from students and members of the community in support of the actions of Sunrise Bloomington. Other student-led groups, such as the IU Student Government, have taken their own environmental initiatives as well, with the organization releasing its Carbon Neutrality Resolution that aims to have the university be carbon neutral after the next two decades. This has allowed both organizations to have a sit-down meeting with the new president of IU, Pamela Witten, and perhaps result in a change in IU policy. Drive Clean Indiana, an organization that seeks to promote energy efficiency in automobiles through an emphasis on alternative and sustainable fuels, has recently been awarded $1.8 million through the Indiana Volkswagen Environmental Mitigation Trust Fund. The fund was a result of a settlement between the Volkswagen Corporation and the U.S. Department of Justice after it was found that actions by the Volkswagen Corporation were in direct violation of the Federal Clean Air Act and were not meeting the established standards. The money will go towards building 42 sustainable non-road vehicles, specifically vehicles used in construction at airports or for agricultural reasons. For the first time, researchers in New York have found that wild white-tailed deer on Staten Island are carrying the Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Further studies have shown that deer across 15 other states are also harboring the virus, including Indiana's neighboring state of Illinois. This is one of the first documented cases of the Omicron variant being passed into wild animals from humans. At the current moment, there is no evidence to say that the deer can give the virus back to humans, but researchers warn that a potential mutation among the virus and the deer population could enable a jump to humans in the future. Based on lab results, the researchers found that many of the deer sampled already had antibodies from the virus, and thus it is possible for deers to be reinfected. 
it is recommended that humans continue to avoid spending time with wild animals. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel. At the Monroe County Council meeting on February 8th, County Auditor Catherine Smith gave an update on the annexation remonstration process. Smith explained that they are still counting numbers and double-checking the parcels of land that submitted remonstration applications that had previously received waivers from the city. So if the, valid, if the waiver is over 15 years old, I want you to know that I'm following state law. Um, it, the press release kind of sound like he really wanted me not to count those. However, when all of us are elected officials, we all swore to uphold state, local, and the laws and the constitution, okay? The state law says it's over 15 years, I cannot count it. So I wanna be very clear with you on what my position was. So I will not be counting any waiver that's over 15 years. So that leaves all the waivers under 15 years. So once we get a good set of the ones that are applicable, we've checked ownership, we've checked all that, then we have to go in and we have to say, what did this piece of property look like? Did it cover this this person's house, that person's house? Because one waiver can cover 300 houses, right? Because it was a farm when it was when the waiver was written, and now it's sub, now it's a big giant subdivision. So um, I have 15 days to finish this. Um, we're going to work consistently, hard as we can, to get it done. But with COVID hitting our office. Uh, the week before the snowstorm and then the snowstorm, I didn't want people to worry about things because I'm sure you've, you know, you know, we were off. You probably heard we had sickness in our office, pretty severe sickness, uh, but we're moving on. And, um, and I, I don't, I don't want people to keep asking, well, are the mayor's numbers right? Are your numbers right? My numbers are not going to be right until we put every piece together and we've investigated every single one in those. We can sort of tell you what we vetted and we know are going to count, but there's still a big subset of ones we have to deep drill deep down or drill farther down into and do a deep dive into all the attributes and all the variants associated with those parcels. Council member Jennifer Crossley gave an update from the Women's Commission about the number of vacant positions on the commission. Not too, too much of an update uh, with the in regards to the Women's Commission. Um, I know that I've been in contact with Michelle and she's really trying really hard to get people. And um, we've been kind of messaging back and forth to figure out our game plan and because we have some vacancies. I have one person that I'm pushing towards the application process. So hopefully they will apply here soon. But um, again, if public is watching, which I really hope you are, um, please consider joining the Women's Commission and we won't stop until we get those filled. So that's all I have to say on that one. Next, the council heard from the prosecutor's office about appropriating funds towards a high-tech crime unit in partnership with Indiana University. Monroe County prosecuting attorney Erica Oliphant outlined what the tech unit would entail. First of all, high-tech crime is any crime um, where you can get evidence from a digital um, source. So it doesn't mean necessarily that, I think a lot of people think of, of some of the crimes that take place on the internet, but really it can be anything. It can be homicides, it can be any manner of things. And so the high-tech crime unit, what it will do is process digital uh, evidence, do a forensic process on 
cell phones, computers, sometimes it's even like fitness trackers, any kind of digital device like that that may contain evidence um, can be analyzed by the high-tech crime unit. And um, we will be servicing a region that's it's about 10 counties in our region. Um, right now, the only uh, there's only a couple of these units that are fully operational um, that are kind of serving as prototypes for our, um, our high-tech crime unit. So the good news is I don't have to fully uh, reinvent the wheel because we have some models to draw from. Um, and this is a resource that's sorely needed. The nice thing about digital evidence um, is that it, you know, it, it's very valuable. It can both um, help to prove a case by providing communications about the crime, sometimes even video and photographs of the crime, those kinds of things. Um, but it can also help to exonerate folks who are not guilty of these offenses and help eliminate suspects as well. So um, in some ways, it is as good, if not better, than DNA evidence, because DNA really only proves that someone was in a place, but it doesn't tell you when, why, how, and a lot of those things that you can sometimes get from those communications and photographs and things like that. So um, I'm very excited. I do think this is going to provide us some um, beneficial evidence in a more timely fashion. The county council approved the appropriations unanimously. The next county council meeting will be held on March 8th. In today's feature report, WFHB News Director Cade Young speaks with Emily Weikert Bryant, Executive Director of Feeding Indiana's Hungry, who urges state lawmakers to vote no on House Bill 1354. The bill would make it harder for residents to receive SNAP benefits. We turn to Cade Young for that interview. Emily Weikert Bryant, Executive Director of Feeding Indiana's Hungry, the network of Feeding America food banks in the state of Indiana. Thank you for coming on to the WFHB Local News. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. So, Emily, you're urging Indiana legislators to vote no on House Bill 1354. More than 600,000 Indiana residents are currently using the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, to put food on the table. If passed, what would House Bill 1354 change about access to SNAP benefits? House Bill 1354 would add two additional qualifications for individuals and households to receive SNAP benefits. The first thing that it would do would be to require uh, non-custodial parents to comply with child support orders, whether that be um, having one on record, um, making payments and being on time for those payments, uh, as well as would require all adults ages 16 to 59 to participate in the SNAP workforce and training program called uh, the IMPACT program, which currently would only apply to able-bodied adults without dependents. And this would apply to the full population who would then have to find other exemptions to not be forced to comply. We know from research that both of these options, which are available to the state, are not a good mechanism to either encourage participation in child support or connect people to meaningful work. And in the, the long run, we'll actually disconnect them from the SNAP benefits that help feed their families. I see. Now, if you're saying that, you know, these new policies won't work, 
In your opinion, why are legislators still moving forward with this measure? You know, there's not a lot of state options in the SNAP program. Most of SNAP policy is federal policy. Um, There are a few, a handful of options that states can exercise. And we've seen even at the national level where Congress took a look at particularly the child support compliance in the last farm bill in 2018, because not a lot of states are utilizing it. And so Congress actually has required the USDA to look at that option and whether it is, is something that is useful to states or not. We would say that it is not a useful mechanism um, and and only would tend to penalize families, cutting them off from SNAP benefits and not, uh, you know, data bears that it doesn't increase access uh, in any substantial amount to child support, particularly for the cost that the program would incur to to enact. What we're seeing is um, really some outside interest groups who are looking to push their agenda in Indiana. Uh, in doing so to to enact change um, to our policy to meet their philosophical approach. I see. And you say outside interest groups. When you refer to outside interest groups, like what are potentially some of those groups that would be behind that effort? Really, the only support testimony for this bill when it was heard in the House Committee came from an organization called the Foundation for Government Accountability. It's an organization out of Florida that shops around this sort of legislation in state uh, legislatures looking to push states to pass these changes that they see as incentivizing work and encouraging families to be self-sufficient. But research bears out, do not do either of those things. Out of curiosity, if you could just touch on who would be most affected if this bill is ultimately passed. So what we can tell from child support participation in Indiana and really across the country, there's a lot of reasons why families may not have a child support order in place. It could be that there was an informal agreement. Uh, It could be in instances of domestic violence that the custodial parent doesn't want to deal with the non-custodial parent for the purposes of child support. There's situations where there could be a kinship care agreement, where if grandparents, for instance, are raising a child but don't have formal custody, Um, or haven't adopted the child that they would have to subject, you know, their children or, or their grandchildren's parents to support orders in order to be eligible for SNAP benefits uh, or for, for the, the families to be eligible. We don't want to see that happening to families. There's many good reasons that this, uh, this has not been enacted in many States at all. And we've actually seen instances where the, the program as it's been enacted, has either been rolled back in a couple of states or states who have studied it or have implemented a pilot and found that the cost to the program is exponentially higher than the benefit. For example, the state of Utah did a legislative study on this very proposal of requiring child support uh, compliance and found that it was way too expensive to implement and not worth the legislature's time and, and, and investment in it. There was a similar pilot program in North Carolina that rather than using SNAP benefits, uh, had a pilot for child care support. They did a pilot in three counties and in the course of a year spent about $2 million to help 12 families collect about 51 additional dollars a month in child support. So the return on investment isn't there. And further, it's taking away access to food, which is, you know, even if folks are not able to pay their child support, 
doesn't mean they're able to afford food either. So we, what we would expect to happen is that non-custodial parents are, are making choices if they're low income enough to, to be eligible for SNAP benefits between paying for rent, paying for food, paying for utilities, and, and in this other instance, paying support. Um, it's, it's not an encouragement for non-custodial parents to, to do more with their child support payments. So right now, the bill passed through the House and it's now in the Senate. In your opinion, what is the likelihood that it will pass through the Senate and ultimately be signed into law by the governor? In all honesty, we're not sure yet. We're continuing uh, with our partners to talk to the members of the committee um, to speak with the author of the bill. We're we're scheduled to speak with them tomorrow. Uh, And also just to find out what legislators are hoping to accomplish with this. I don't think that their hearts are in the wrong place. I think they're really sincerely trying to connect, um, you know, custodial parents to child support and folks who are not working to a, a, you know, a path towards employment. But we're, we're talking to them very earnestly explaining that these are not successful programs to do that. Could we find another way to do this or can we talk about it a little longer? So we don't know yet. Um, There's only a, a handful of weeks left in the Indiana General Assembly session. And so we're doing everything that we can and, and working with a large group of partners to uh, explain to legislators that, that this is not the best policy. Well, and that's a good segue into the next question. You know, the organizing and advocating against this bill, how are you conducting that organizing and, and advocating against this House bill? So working uh, between our organization, Feeding Indiana's Hungry, which is the state association of food banks, and the Indiana Community Action Poverty Institute, which was prior called the Indiana Institute for Working Families and our colleagues there, we've been working uh, to, to get a broad coalition of partners from a, a, a wide variety of, of backgrounds who have signed on to a letter that we'll be releasing shortly explaining that, that we oppose this policy. And we've got a, a broad coalition of folks working with us, retail, um, for-profit companies, nonprofit organizations on a wide spectrum of human services, whether it be um, child-facing, senior-facing, all sorts of of folks who have signed on to this that are agreeing that this is not the best policy. And there's from across the state and many statewide organizations, uh, which I think makes an impact on the legislators because they understand that people in their districts and people who are in our space and, and understand what this impact will be really disagree with the policy. Now, I want to ask you a more personal question, if I may. In a perfect world, what legislation would you like to see passed at the state house as an alternative to the employment conundrum we're finding ourselves in today? I think there's a lot to be said for voluntary programs. We see them as much more effective in connecting low-income folks with work in you know providing them resources it's it's problematic when someone is required to participate in a work training program but they don't have the child care to to do it or they don't have the transportation or you know they maybe they don't have the right work clothes maybe they don't have the right background so there's lots to be said for voluntary programs that help folks who need it but there's a lot of people who are just between jobs or they've been impacted by the pandemic or you know, something changed in, in their schedules or their their households that they are SNAP eligible. They just happen to be between jobs. They don't necessarily need the job training. They just need that next job. And so comp- compelling all of these folks to be engaging in workforce training or to be 
uh, you know, mandating other behaviors is, is really not a successful step forward. We would really like to see opportunities. Um, so more carrot than stick to, to help people access what they need while they're also able to provide for their families through SNAP benefits. Well, Emily, that's all the questions I have prepared for you, but I want to give you the last word here. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we part ways? We're not sending a call of action out at this time, but I will let you absolutely know when we do. In the short term, if if folks have an opportunity to reach out to their state senators, they'll be the ones who will be considering this next. If it hits the floor, if it does come through committee, we would ask that they oppose House Bill 1354. Well, Emily Weikert Bryant, Executive Director of Feeding Indiana's Hungry, the network of Feeding America food banks in the state of Indiana, thank you again for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Up next, security programs on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. Host and producer Richard Fish says there's a war going on today out on the internet. Scammers and hackers and even governments are attacking computers worldwide. Here's a look at some ways you can protect yourself out in cyberspace. Richard Fish has more. Better beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. We spend more and more time in cyberspace these days, and it's silent. If you could hear cyberspace, it would sound something like this. Cyberspace is a battlefield, with crooks and scammers and even foreign governments constantly mounting raids and sneak attacks and offensives with bombs, bullets, and poison gas in the shape of all kinds of digital malware. It's been compared to the lawless old Wild West days where everyone packed a six-gun to defend themselves. But you can arm yourself with programs and apps to keep your digital devices out of the digital equivalent of a grave on Boot Hill. You do have a good security program on your computer, right? And on your smartphone, your tablet, your router, on any device you've got that accesses the Internet? Sadly, way too many people don't. Basic operating systems like Microsoft Windows and Apple iOS have security programs built in, and they're getting better. But depending on them is just like wearing a helmet and wandering no man's land half-naked. The bad guys know all about them and constantly seek ways to go around and attack you on the flank or from the rear through the programs and apps you install. A quick search for best antivirus software instantly turns up a screen full of independent websites that test and rate security programs, but they differ. ZDNet, for instance, rates the top five programs as Kaspersky Total Security, Malwarebytes, Intego Internet Security for Macs, Norton, 
and Bitdefender, in that order. PC Magazine puts Bitdefender at the top, followed by Webroot, Kaspersky, Malwarebytes, and Norton. The antivirus software guide likes Total AV, PC Protect, ScanGuard, and McAfee. There are a lot of choices. You need to do your own research to find out what fits your needs. Which program is best at spotting suspicious emails, if that's what you do most? Which one has the smallest impact on your computer, if you use it intensively for online gaming? You need to look at the programs and the company. Some people are put off by Kaspersky because that's a Russian company, and a huge percentage of attacks come from Russia, but maybe that's why it's so highly rated. Many of these programs have free versions, which are a whole lot better than nothing. But even if you pay for one, the cost is going to be peanuts compared to the damage a hacker can do to your computer and your life. But it's up to you to choose and install a security program on every gadget you own that connects online before somebody out there hits you with a digital... I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. 
Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 